Hey, everyone. My new book, Beautiful Writers, A Journey of Big Dreams and Messy Manuscripts with Tricks of the Trade from Bestselling Authors, is ready for pre-order. Those authors are the legends you hear here on this very show. Beautiful Writers pubs on August 23rd. And if you purchase the book now and plug in your order number over on bookmama.com, you will receive lots of really cool writerly pre-order bonuses to help you birth your own book baby. I even send you personalized book plates to include in your books for holiday gifts with five or more orders. I mean, how much easier is that than trying to re-gift used candles? I love when wins. And now for the show. I asked myself why the prospect of losing 13 scrolls, two vials of ink, two reed pens, three clean sheets of papyrus, and a bowl set off such desperation in me. Only now do I see the immensity I assigned to these objects. They not only represented those fragile stories I wanted to preserve, they also held the full weight of my craving to express myself, to lift out of my small self, out of the enclosure of my life, and find what lay beyond. I wanted for so much. Do you think it's possible to ever see the past as it actually was? I asked my sister. We were sitting in her car, parked in front of the Dutch house, in the broad daylight of early summer. The linden trees kept us from seeing anything except the linden trees. I had thought the trees were enormous when I was young, but they'd kept right on growing. Maybe one day they'd grow into the wall of Andrea's dreams. I see the past as it actually was, Maeve said. She was looking at the trees. But we overlaid the present onto the past. We look back through the lens of what we know now, so we're not seeing it as the people we were. We're seeing it as the people we are, and that means the past has been radically altered. Audiobook fans, that first excerpt you heard was from Sue Monk Kid's latest, currently on the New York Times bestseller list, the Book of Longings, narrated by Mojan Marno. The second was from Ann Patchett's 2019 New York Times bestseller and 2020 finalist for the Pulitzer Prize in Fiction, The Dutch House, performed by Tom Hanks. I'm Linda Sievertson, and I am a huge audiobook fan, not only for the environmental angle, but because when I'm working on a book, which I am now, it's a relief to be able to read while not adding further stress to my eyeballs. People used to say that audiobooks were cheating, but science tells us that listening to books stimulates our brains as much as reading them. Plus, we're living in especially tumultuous times right now. COVID-19 continues to rage on. We're seeing nationwide protests here in the U.S. over the killing of yet another unarmed Black man, George Floyd. It feels in many ways like our world is coming undone. And even the most avid readers like Sue and Anne and myself, we're having trouble focusing to read, as you'll hear. Maybe you are too. A good book on tape, though, it's enormously comforting. For that reason, I will share several additional snippets of their books when the storylines relate to where we are in our conversation. I had a sensitive, maybe even a bold question I really wanted to ask these two longtime literary idols of mine, whose books, The Secret Life of Bees and Dance of the Dissident Daughter, State of Wonder, and Bel Canto are among my all-time faves. Here's the question. 
How are a couple of white women so audacious as to write books where the majority of characters are not their race or gender? How does a woman sitting alone in a room put her mind and heart into the soul of a man or an African-American slave or modern day or an Amazonian tribes person, a Japanese business mogul, a Peruvian general, a terrorist, an American soprano, a brother and sister over the course of five decades or as in the case with Sue's new book, The Wife of Jesus. And in today's swiftly changing world, amid discussions about cultural appropriation, I so appreciated how Anne voiced the question aloud, would they even tackle these topics today or live out their largeness in other ways? Anne was on the show early last year, and I'm so happy she agreed to come back. I'm just such a fan of the Dutch house. And another one she's also published since, Lambslide, a book for the kiddos. I didn't know until we were on the line that Anne and Sue are friends, but of course they are. Despite the times, this is a joyous one, y'all. These Southern-born and raised ladies take on mammoth themes in their lives and books. Perhaps you followed Sue's metamorphosis from good little Christian girl to all-out feminine theologian. Either way, these two are fun as hell. We have lots to cover. I want to know where they get their audacity and empathy to write about lives so far removed from their own. I want to know where they write, how they write about loved ones, if they have beta readers, how they research their books, and if their husbands are driving them crazy at home right now while we're all sheltering in place. And what about social media? Love it or leave it. It's an odd thing doing a book tour from home. Anne and Sue have been touring the globe for decades, so... Having to become suddenly uber tech savvy is new and they're doing it in a big way. We'll talk about how. And since this show is audio only, I had to ask, and I'm so glad I did. What are you wearing? Welcome. Do you two know each other? Yeah. Yes. And not only that, we like each other. (laughs) Yeah. I happen to like her immensely. I like her her store in a spectacular way. Oh, Parnassus. It's just a haven, isn't it? Oh, it's great. Almost as great as Anne. (laughs) (laughs) I'm mildly obsessed with Anne's videos right now that she's making on behalf of the bookstore and Father's Day and all the baby boxes and things we can buy. Oh my gosh. (laughs) Yeah, I never realized that I would become the world's most innovative retailer. But that's what I am now. (laughs) Pimping myself out on every occasion. Yeah. Well, I say that desperation breeds genius. So there you are. (laughs) (laughs) Pandemic will do it. (laughs) That's good. I'm ready then. So Sue, in this COVID yoga pant wearing world we're all in right now, where Anne has been making these videos in her fancy dresses and tiaras, How about you? Are you cash over there sheltering in place or are you wearing fancy dresses and pants beneath your desk, unlike most Americans right now? (laughs) Well, I think you have been spying in my window because I typically put on a nice top, comb my hair, little blush, little gloss on my lips, and I wear sweatpants and bedroom shoes (laughs) with it. It's a weird combination, but I like it. 
That sounds good. <laughs> right. I'm yeah. kind of all the way down or all the way up. I'm wearing my dog walking clothes, but I was just going through the closet trying to find what I was going to wear for shooting some videos tomorrow. And I found the bridesmaid's dress from my sister's wedding in 2005, which I only wore once. Oh and I'm God. thinking, oh yeah, that's tomorrow. Tomorrow, <laughs> tomorrow I will be doing my hair and putting on those big rhinestone earrings and wearing a red bridesmaid's dress. Well, I'm just impressed that you fit in it. I doubt I could fit in one I wore in 2005. Good for you, Anne. Do you know what's really freaky? I have dresses that I wore in high school that I still wear. And I am 56. I have <laughs> never changed. I've never changed size. I am very proud of my habits in that I haven't gained the quarantine 15 like I gained the freshman 15. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's true. How are you guys faring over there in this, dare I say, biblical time? How are your habits? Well, I have been battened down since mid-March and have barely left the house, but I've not really minded so much because I've been so distracted by this virtual book tour I've been on. Yeah. So it has kept me very busy and that's a good thing. Sue, are you at all surprised by the prophetic timing of the plague and sheltering in place storylines in the Book of Longings? I mean, None of us have seen this combo in our lifetimes. How has that little coincidence landed for you? Well, it's, I had no idea. I was so prescient. I mean, (laughs) it it was just kind of freaky when I realized it. But yeah, there was a plague and there's quarantining going on in the novel. And it's an interesting parallel to say the least. And by the way, can you give us fair warning about any disastrous topics you decide to take up in your next (laughs) book? Right. (laughs) Yeah, I'm going to write about a utopia or something. Please. That sounds like a plan. Hey, Sue, I'm really curious about your virtual book tour because we're trying to get all of this figured out at the bookstore and how we can help writers do things. And I'm just wondering, what have you done that you feel has really been successful as an event? Great question. Some of these virtual live events on Instagram have been phenomenal in helping me to really reach an audience and to reach a fairly large audience because these events were with Brene Brown on her Glennon podcast. Doyle. Oh, Glennon Doyle. That was yeah, so lovely. good. So good. Yeah, those were really wonderful conversations. And surprisingly enough, people really got into all of that. I just did one with Alicia Keys, which was, um, and I did one with Ashley Judd, which was one of the most fascinating conversations I've had. She's so brilliant. I yeah, did Ted really Women is. with her. She is, I mean, not on stage together, but we were there at the same time. And she just blew my mind. We hung on her every word. Yeah, she was just very provocative and wonderful. And these are just some fairly large names, but that was the beauty of it is that somehow they got interested and helped me reach just great audiences that were, I think, the kind that would gravitate toward my novel. And are these things, are they visual or are they all audio? These are visual. So again, with the technology, which I had to have a real helper with, but (laughs) I know more about all of this than I care to now. 
But I've probably done 10 or 12 of these at least. I did one with Nora O'Donnell even. And some of these, I just approached them and they said yes. And my publicist did. So I think this is going to be a hybrid of the future, I'm afraid. (laughs) We're going to continue this because it's been pretty successful. It's so fantastic to not leave your house. Well, there is that. Yeah. There's no different city every day. Yeah. And at first I was kind of disappointed, like, oh, I'm not going to get to really see these readers. And I love to see their faces and hear what they have to say. But it's amazing how much you can really engage with them and hear their thoughts because they write them down and send them to you in comments. Yeah. And it's great. Yeah. The one that you did with Glennon Doyle, I felt like there was such synergy. You've got these two books, Untamed and The Book of Longings. Both are about women who have the courage to trespass through their lives, to live out their largeness. And then we see you both on the New York Times list at the same time. And to me, that's such a testament to the longing. I think women feel everywhere to live freely and to live out loud. And I imagine you must feel so grateful right now to live in a time period where you can tell a story like this so freely. There does seem to be a receptivity to it that is just timely and wonderful because the response has been, I mean, just amazing. And what is interesting about Glennon's book, which is a phenomenal book, I think. I loved this book. It's very brave and it's bold. It was wonderful. But she tells her story as memoir. And I tell a story through fiction that it's just different ways to come at it. And it is fascinating. They're kind of like cousins or something. So true. And when we talked early last year for this show, you waxed pretty poetically about how your doctor hubby was gone all day working, which is a sweet setup for a solitary writing practice. But is he home now or is he at the hospital? Both of which I imagine could be challenging. He was home for probably six or eight weeks. And I loved it. (laughs) Yeah, Carl is 72 and he is constantly trying to decide whether or not he's going to retire. It's a conversation we've been having for 20 years. (laughs) And it was this great trial run. And he has always been terrified that if he was home all the time, I would get tired of him, which is not something that concerned me actually. And we had a fantastic time. I loved having him home. And now he's gone back to work. So I don't know why. I think he should have stayed. (laughs) But it's such a personal thing. And my mantra is just, you've got to do whatever makes you happy. Larry and I had the same situation. He's been talking about retiring. And so it's been a forced kind of trial run, as you said. We have both been amazed at how much neither of us is in a hurry for it to end. And He's still working on his computer in the kitchen and I'm working on mine in the office, but it's just been really sweet. I think this pandemic has shown people where they are in harmony with people in their lives and where they're not. It becomes really obvious really fast. (laughs) Yes. And I know with Carl, we don't seem to take up any of each other's psychic space. You know, there are people that you can be in a house with. And even if they are on the other side of the house being silent, it's like they're screaming at you all the time or they're (laughs) right in your head all the time. And maybe it's just that we've been together for such a long time. But 
we are able to really be quiet and separate in the same place. That's probably saving for a marriage right there, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Sue, where is your writing cave right now? Or do you not need one since you're in promotion time versus writing time? No, I need one all the time. I have a room upstairs that I converted into my, what I call my study. My husband says, what are you studying up there? <laughs> but, it, but it's my study. <laughs> but it's, it's a real sanctuary for me. I love my solitude. And Sandy and I have been married 51 years. Wow. Mm. Yeah, I wanted you to be wowed by that. <laughs> really beautiful. Yeah, you were married in your early 20s. You had two children right away. Yeah, actually, I married at 20. This is the kind of craziness we did in the 60s. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you were Southern Baptist. Yep, yep. I mean, you had to be engaged before you left college back then. It was a strange time. But at any rate, we have a wonderful rhythm, too. He lets me have my solitude and my time and without... Similar to what you were describing, Anne, and I think that's beautiful. And right now I'm hearing from so many women who are talking about the need to have some time for themselves. They struggle with that, particularly younger women. It's just like a theme about, particularly among writers. It's an ache. Yeah, it's an ache. It's a longing. And I remember that when I had two toddlers. It's very hard. Yeah. Did you ever feel like you were stealing time? You know, I used to eye the door and I would feel so guilty because I loved my kid and I loved my husband. But that desire to write was so all-encompassing that I just couldn't wait to get away from them. Did you feel like that? Oh, yes. (laughs) (laughs) Why am I whispering? I don't know. (laughs) And did you feel guilty? And how did you rectify that? I think it is some kind of innate conflict if you go the mothering route. It just seems to be there. If you're yep. with the child, you want to be writing. If you're writing, you need to be with the child. Oh, it, totally. It was just hard. And fortunately, it's relatively temporary, I guess. It, yeah, only 18 years. <laughs> yeah, it feels like forever. My daughter likes to tell the story of when I forget to pick her up at school, she would be the last child out there because I was in my writing room. And she said, I'm going to be on a therapist's couch for, yep. because of you never thought to come get me. But you know, they're going to be on that therapist's couch regardless whether you didn't give enough or you gave too much and then forfeited your own dreams. Okay, so I want to float a theory by the two of you. Please. Because my mother was a mother who missed many pickups at school. (laughs) And of course, this was back in the old days when there were no cell phones, of course. And if your mother was late and you were the last kid and I went to Catholic school and the nuns would be out there with me on the corner getting (laughs) irritated and everybody else was gone and wasn't there and wasn't there. And what you always think is that your mother's dead. Right. For sure. And and that to me seems to be the essential first step towards adulthood. That as a child, you have a moment when you imagine your mother is dead and you can imagine the future in which she's dead. And now children never have that moment. 
Never, because you can always find your mother. If your mother oh. isn't picking you up at school, she is dead. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, um, she goes to social services. <laughs> right, because you've got your phone. Everybody's got their phone. And mm-hmm. that sort of primal break that happens between a mother and a child when the mother is late, doesn't show up, seems to me to be so essential to psychological development, all by way of saying, I think you kept your daughter off the psychiatrist's couch. Wow. Because oh, wow. It put her on the path to individuating. <laughs> My goodness, Anne, that is I've deep thought and about profound. this a lot. <laughs> wow. Obviously, first of all, I want to say you turned out great, so I'm not worried about my daughter. At Thank all. you. <laughs> and Commonwealth was a great book, in part influenced by that time. So there you go. There you go. Yeah. But you know, when I'm in the grocery store and I see adults calling their mothers and saying, what kind of flower am I supposed to get? (laughs) And I just think, no, no, there's a point at which you have to start figuring all of this stuff out by yourself. (laughs) Oh, goodness. Yeah. Well, luckily, I do know, in fact, that my daughter is amazing. (laughs) She's amazing. She is amazing. I think your theory... I think the psychological community needs to pick up on that because it seems to have merit to me. And there is a process that we have to disidentify with our moms and then find out who we are. And then maybe you can be friends. Right. Sue, when you wrote Traveling with Pomegranates with your daughter, Anne, it was a dual memoir, a mother and daughter journey to the sacred places of Greece, Turkey, and France. It made me wonder... My son and I also wrote a book together. He was younger. He was 17. We wrote an echo book for Simon & Schuster. And collaboration can be hard. And collaborating with a family member, oh my God. His father and I were going through a really intense divorce. And Tosh was shy. And he didn't really want to be in the media. And our publisher would call and say, hey, you're going to be on Teen Vogue this month. Or Family Circle's calling you for an interview. And he's like, mom, do I have to? (laughs) And so. What was that like, writing with your daughter? Did it ever get dicey? Not really. It was mostly a process of enormous discovery of one another that was just fascinating to me. The number one question we would get from people when they found out we were writing a book together was, are you still speaking? (laughs) Which I think (laughs) says a great deal about the state of mother-daughter affairs in this world. but. We not only were still speaking, I think we were brought closer by the experience of writing the memoir. And it was, you know, we just learned so much. And not that we were always in agreement about how to go about things. We did it like this. I would write a chapter, my chapters, and hand them to her and she would read them and she would give me hers. And then we'd meet and talk about them and how we needed to alter them and revise. And sometimes we differed. But we always worked it out. And she was very good. This was her first book. And so she was very good about deferring right then. Yeah, yeah. But- <laughs> Tosh was too. It was very sweet, actually. Very, very sweet. How old was she at the time? That we wrote the book? Yes. We were describing an experience of her just after college. And I turned 50. She turned 22. But we wrote this a good 10 years later or mm-hmm. so. So she was older, but yearning to write at the time. The tablet was no bigger than the palm of my hand. 
Its smallness forced me to shrink my letters, which caused the fervency inside them to strain at the ink. I tell you, there are times when words are so glad to be set free they laugh out loud and prance across their tablets and inside their scrolls. So it was with the words I wrote. They reveled till dawn. I want to talk about bolstering belief when you're first starting out. So the confidence of a new writer can be really shaky, even when we're feeling that early momentum. The intentional or sometimes unintentional dream stealing of those that we care about can really do a number on us. And I remember you telling me that as a kid, you wrote and read all the time and people told you you'd be a writer, but Sue, you didn't take writing up until much later. Can you tell us how that happened and what gave you the courage? Yes, that's true. I didn't start writing until I was 30 years old. However, It wasn't because I didn't want to. (laughs) I grew up telling people when I was 10 and 11 that I was going to be a writer. And I remember reading Jane Eyre around, I don't know, 13 or so, and just being swept away by the idea. It made me want to write. Everything I read made me want to write. (laughs) I know, me too. But you know what? I was, back to this, I really did grow up in pre-feminist South in a small, tiny town of 3,000 people in Georgia. And there was such an encultured feeling that girls did this. They became teachers, librarians, nurses, you know, that kind of thing. It was a really strong mentality. And so when it came time to go to college, that's what I did. I followed a more traditional path. And I have said many times, I think it was a failure of courage on my part But I had not grown enough at 18 or whatever to step outside of the culture that raised me and find enough strength to do my thing. It took me another 10 years. But at 30, I was so homesick for myself Mm. and wanted to write so badly. And it was my 30th birthday. I thought I was very old. I thought I was very old. (laughs) And I remember having two toddlers and my husband was sitting at the table having cereal. And I was in the laundry room washing clothes. And I came in and I just announced, it was my big enunciation, (laughs) I'm going to be a writer. Of course, I had never studied writing. I didn't know anything about writing. But I started and I never looked back at it. That's such a beautiful story. I love that. I remember Lee Child said on the show, he had been fired from an 18-year television career. And his dad was like, dude, your odds are 10,000 to one. You're going to have a hit. And here he is a few hundred million books later. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And Anne, you knew really young. You were first published in the Paris Review at 20. There was no going back for you. Yeah. And it's funny because I grew up in the pre-feminist South. I interviewed Reese Witherspoon recently for Vanity Fair. And Reese is, I think, like 43. And she was talking about, she grew up in the pre-feminist South. (laughs) I I think that's still about 20 minutes ago. Um, (laughs) But the advantage that I had is that I was raised by nuns. I went to a convent school for 12 years and 
I was raised by women who were career women who bucked the system. No one is happy when their daughter becomes a nun. And so these were women who had to walk a really hard path coming back to your beautiful book, Sue, but they made choices that had to do with their bedrock faith and knowing that they had a real calling. And so the idea of having a calling, something that was bigger than your own choice, was something that I absolutely grew up with and believed. But the nuns always told us because they were not in the business of recruitment at all, (laughs) was that God will tell you. And maybe he'll tell you that you should be a wife. And maybe he'll tell you that you should have a religious vocation. And maybe he'll tell you that you should be a teacher. So I just thought, oh, well, all right, God's told me I'm going to be a writer. And in my mind, just lined up perfectly. And it gave me permission to not get married and to not Mm -hmm. have children and to not want those things and to say, well, look, here are this whole group of women living together in this great big house because they've made this decision to jump off the track and Mm -hmm. do something else. Mm. Wow. Okay, so you just brought up something, Anne, that is sparking an interest for me about the South in general. And I want to give a little context about what I'm thinking. So if you look back 350 years of Europeans going, something like 55,000 voyages to and from Africa, where they enslaved 400,000 Africans, most of whom ended up in the American South. And it was these men and women and their children who were responsible for much of the economic foundation of the ruling class. The two of you have a lot of diversity in your books. And Belcanto was set in South America, State of Wonder in the Amazon with tribal groups. And your novels Taft and Run were made up primarily of African-American characters. And then Sue in The Secret Life of Bees and The Invention of Wings, many of your characters, your main characters are African-American. And I read as a child in the South that you read a lot of those slave narratives that I think really opened so many of our eyes when we were young, if we were able to read them about the plight of African-Americans. I remember reading one where, and I forget who the author was, but it was something about how he owned nothing and could claim nothing and their wives weren't theirs, their children weren't theirs. Family could be taken and separated at any point and you could be insulted, you could be tortured, you could never raise your hand in protest. And What's amazing to me about the two of you is you're these lovely white ladies who write with such incredible empathy. You get into the minds and hearts and skin of whomever you're writing about. And I would love for you to tell me more about how you do that. The racial issues that we have in this country, and particularly my experience in the South, had a profound effect on me, on my consciousness and I think I knew from the very beginning, even back when I was an adolescent and still believed I would be a writer before I lost it and then found it, (laughs) I thought perhaps I would write a novel and it would be about the 60s and racial conflicts because I witnessed so many of them. 
I think this is a particularly Southern thing too, because mm-hmm. it is a wounded geography about this. And I have noticed that we don't like to talk about slavery in America too much. And I think it doesn't fit with our sense of ourselves as Americans, the winners, the ones who win the wars and who have all the innovation. And we have such a rarefied vision of ourselves. And this is not a good, this doesn't fit. (laughs) Exactly. This whole slavery. We don't like to talk about it. But I felt like I wanted to go to ground zero to understand where this racial issue came from, this terrible racial divide in our country. And I had dealt with it in The Secret Life of Bees in the 60s, and I wanted then to go all the way back. It was very daunting to me to write in the voice of an African-American enslaved woman, but I was very compelled to do it. And I remember something James Baldwin said that this is a shared history, both white and black, particularly in the South. It's a deeply shared history. And I felt I was writing my history and giving witness to my history, too. And even in the Book of Longings, slavery was throughout the entire biblical period. It was everywhere. So you've continued it on into this book. Well, I can't seem to stop writing about this. <laughs> I love you. I love you. <laughs> or, or women. That's my other thing is gender and women finding their freedom and their voice and their potential. That's a thing I can't get away from either. Not long before she arrived, I'd begun writing down the stories of the matriarchs in the scriptures. Listening to the rabbis, one would have thought the only figures worth mention in the whole of history were Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, David, Saul, Solomon, Moses, Moses, Moses. When I was finally able to read the scriptures for myself, I discovered, behold, there were women. To be ignored, to be forgotten, this was the worst sadness of all. I swore an oath to set down their accomplishments and praise their flourishings, no matter how small. I would be a chronicler of lost stories. It was exactly the kind of boldness Mother despised. I want to go back and ask Sue a question that is something that I wrestle with so much. And if we were standing in the back room at Parnassus right now and you were signing your name, do you feel if you were that woman at 30 with your toddlers, making your decision on your birthday to be a writer, but that was happening right now, today. Do you think that you would be able to write the books that you've written? Because the times Mm -hmm. have changed so drastically, so recently, that I look at my books, even books like State of Wonder and Bel Canto, Mm -hmm. I look at those books and I think, I'm not sure that I could start out today writing those books because the awareness has changed. And going through this whole experience with American Dirt, which if anybody wants to talk about, I'm happy to, and who owns a story and who can tell a story. Sue, where are you coming from? Oh, wow. Yeah, I get it totally. And I agree that I probably could not have written a couple of books that I wrote today. 
I was discussing that not so long ago with my daughter and she agreed with me too. And even my editor agreed with me because I did write in the voice of an enslaved woman. My feeling about it is that if we start deciding who can imagine in a certain way and tell a certain story, we're already in a little bit of jeopardy and we've got to think about this, how to do this. But at the same time, respecting other cultures. Yeah. It is exactly so hard. Yeah. It's so hard. And Janine Cummins, who wrote American Dirt, she put her heart and soul into that book. She researched that book for, I think, a decade. This wasn't somebody just flitting around, putting something down real quick to make a buck. Far from it. And it it was such a good book. Beautiful book. And Mm -hmm. I have stood behind that book and been such a champion of it. And obviously it's doing great and people are, it's so funny how we all live in this echo chamber of publishing where it's just like American dirt, American dirt. But then you get outside of our tiny little box and people are like, oh yeah, I heard about that book. Oh, I'm going to read it. Oh, that was great. (laughs) And (laughs) controversy doesn't necessarily jump the wall. Oh, that's so good to know. I did not know that. It's been fascinating. Like my neighbors will stop me on the street and say, one neighbor said, oh, I'm going on an international flight. This was four months ago. Trying to decide, I want to take a novel. Which book should I take? And I said, what do you like? And he said, what about that American Dirt book? I keep hearing about that. And that was how it registered with him. Just that he had heard the noise, but he hadn't heard what the noise was saying. And I think that that book was a phenomenal act of empathy. I find Mm -hmm. that in my experience, the people who rabidly are furious about it are not people who have read it. But just that level of vitriol that's out there, I think that has some impact on all of us as writers because you just think, man, really, am I going to just stick my hand in a hornet's nest? Really? Maybe not. Yeah. yeah, I agree, Anne. It's uh, troubling to me. And I hate to see these fears begin to influence what we write, how we write, how we curate our imaginations, what yeah. stories we tell. I think it's that we should all have the freedom to write what we want, but we do it well and respectfully of the other cultures. That's yeah. kind of my feeling about yeah. it. I totally agree. And yet I can think of so many scenarios now that I wouldn't write about. Yeah, Louise Erdrich is a great friend of mine, and I really feel like she is our very best. I love her work so much. I love The Night Watchman so much. And I think I would no more write a book about the Ojibwe people than I would (laughs) jump in front of a train. You know, I, I just would never, never do that. And so I know that there are all sorts of places that now at this point in my life, I would not dare to go. Whereas when I was young, I felt like there were no limits. And I wonder how it is for young writers now who come into this business with the limits. Well, as one who has just written a book in which Jesus got married. Yeah, well, there's that. (laughs) There is that. I'm not too good on being prudent, apparently. Apparently. Sue, when I was growing up, two of my father's best friends, who I called uncles, 
wrote really popular books about Jesus. These were not religious men, per se, deeply spiritual and rebellious, yes, but not religious. The first one, by his closest friend, Charles Saylor, who has been on this show, it was called The Second Son, which, like The Secret Life of Bees, sold over 6 million copies. Oh my gosh. And it was a modern-day Jesus story set in Manhattan. At any rate, the second book by Eugene Whitworth was called The Nine Faces of Christ. It was about a fictional Jesus, his lost years that are not covered in the Bible. So I have a particular odd history of being very, very close to male authors who have written fictional accounts of Jesus's life. And both men told me that they felt that they were channeling or downloading the material. So Sue, when your agent, the very most awesome Margaret Riley King, when she first told me about the Book of Longings and what a masterpiece it is, I was elated in part because I thought, oh my God, I finally get to cover a book about Jesus from the feminine. And come to find out, it's mostly about Anna, his wife. But did you feel like you were channeling or downloading this book? Not really in that sense. For me, it was just a daily experience of imagining and then trying to apply some rationality to that imagining. (laughs) My approach to writing is more or less trying to balance what Leon Somillion, who was a writing teacher, who was not my teacher, I read his book, but I was struck by his approach. He talked about the madness and the measure. And Mm. I thought that was genius. The madness being that whole kind of wild imagining. And I took it a little further for myself. It's just tapping into something within us. And I call it a kind of conversation we have with our own soul. In the best sense, to me, that's what writing is. And then trying to balance it with the conscious approach, bringing craft to it and plot and the things we're taught and learned, somehow if we can do that, I think we begin to get a bit, both a soulful piece and a well-crafted piece. And that's my aim. So I wish I could channel everything, but it's really kind of, it's sort of hard <laughs> to, to sit in that chair and do what I do. I'd like to channel. But I reckon that the idea for the book the way it worked on you and talked to you. I would bet that that could have been channeled right there. Well, who knows? I mean, I do know that I believe in the power of this inner place, the inner life. I believe in the imagination and the power of it. I can't tell you how much I believe in that, in our power to really change things. And in these kind of collective myths that are inside of us that we tap into. There's a universal thing inside of us and it's mystery, much of it's mystery. And I do think we tap into these things. But that story, the appearance of Anna, she just appeared. There she was. She just walked in and would not leave until I told her story. (laughs) Oh, I love that so much. And, you know, it would have been the norm. It was the norm of that time for men like Jesus to have a wife. It would have been unusual had he not had a wife. And it was not the norm to have those women written about in scripture. What you did so remarkably in telling her story was that you told it in such a way that it was extremely respectful, I believe, of Christian doctrines, 
Was that important to you? Yes, it was, certainly. I think that Jesus was, um, he's the Jesus of my childhood, Baptist, Southern Baptist world. (laughs) (laughs) So I say more, but I grew up to actually leave institutional Christianity. Sure. But I have a great reverence for the life of Jesus and his teachings. I wanted to do that in a very reverential way. There's a title of a book that I read for this research called Meeting Jesus Again for the First Time. It's written Mm -hmm. by Marcus Borg. He's a historical Jesus scholar. And that's when I saw that and read it, I thought that's what I would love is for people to meet Jesus again for the first time. Mm-hmm. And I have had a lot of readers say they've kind of fallen in love with this human Jesus oh, and yeah. just trying to portray my understanding, at least, of him along with the scholarship I did. Could you talk a little bit about your research? I loved the fact that you, in your acknowledgments, mentioned the teaching company where I have gotten so much information in my life from the teaching company. And oh, I guess, yeah. how long did you spend doing research? And do you do your research before you start or do you do it while you're writing? Oh, well, in this question. case, there was so much of it <laughs> and it was so daunting. I mean, this was like getting Please. on a spaceship and going to another planet. <laughs> and I didn't know what they wore, what they ate, what the seasons were like. I had to learn it from the ground up. So I spent 14 months researching this pretty full time before I wrote anything. And I actually enjoyed it for the most part. But I read a lot, you know, documentaries, things online. I traveled a little bit. I didn't go back to the Holy Land. I had been there 40 years ago, and I decided that was recent enough. (laughs) Not much has changed, I would guess. (laughs) Yeah, but it was a lot of just grueling notebook keeping and note taking and hoping I was synthesizing everything. I'm sure I didn't get it all perfectly, but I did try. You did a great job. What about you? Thanks. What about you, Anne, for the Dutch house, the Van Hobeeks in 1922, just outside of Philadelphia? Did you travel to this area? It's an area that I actually have spent a lot of time in and know very well. I had friends who lived there and- I've, Oh, I've in college, in right? It was there. near Sarah Lawrence. Yes, exactly. The things that I did research on for that book were medical, which is very easy because that just meant that I had to ask my- Ask husband. your husband? <laughs> And New York real estate in the 70s. And that really was, that was hard. And it also, I have to say, it feels utterly ridiculous to be talking about real estate in New York in the 70s right after we're talking about figuring out the life of Jesus. (laughs) Oh, I thought you were going to say after the pandemic and the fact that real estate has just gone through the Yeah, uh, right. So let's just drop that one. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, but... Uh, You sound like a saner person than me to do this. But you did get Tom Hanks to do the narration of your book. And he's pretty Christ-like in our society. I know Tom and I asked him, How's He's that wonderful. for an answer? I, I never in a million years thought that he would do it, but I knew that he wouldn't do it if I never asked him. <laughs> I did the same thing. I asked him to be on this show and he said yes, and I still can't believe it. I mean, there he's just go. a good guy. He's a He's really, a really nice man. And he obviously loved your story or he never would have taken the 
hours and hours it takes to narrate it. Yeah. And it was a first person male narrator. So I thought, I'm just going to give this a shot. And so good. It worked. Yeah. It's phenomenal. I've never listened to any of my own audiobooks, and I listened to that one. It was gorgeous. It was gorgeous. He's the perfect Danny. I could have been in that building every waking hour, every day of the year, and still not made all the necessary repairs. Uncontrollable steam heat. Illegal garbage disposals. One tenant whose daughter flushed an orange down the toilet to see if it would go. And another who left her door open so her cat could shit in the hall. And the terrier two doors down, who would always find the shit and gobble it up and vomit on the floor. With every crisis, I learned how to fix something else. And I learned how to soothe the people whose problems were not mine to solve. I made money. I hired a super and started a management company. The surest way to know if a building was worth buying was to manage it first or to manage a building on a block where another building went up for sale. Pretty much everything in New York was for sale in those days, if you knew who to ask. I knew the councilman, the cops. I went in and out of basements. Maeve kept my books and did the taxes for the corporation as well as our personal taxes. It drove Celeste to distraction. I just ordered the audio for that. I'm Big way, treat. way behind on my reading because oh, you're I'm gonna so love exhausted. It. I fall asleep at <laughs> nine o'clock every night <laughs> from this tour, but you I know, cannot wait. Yeah. I've found reading to be tricky in this time. Have either yeah. of you? It's tricky for me right now because I'm writing. So I'm finishing up the manuscript for Beautiful Writers. So for me right now, my eyeballs are so tired. I am definitely not reading very much, but I'm listening to audiobooks nonstop. Oh, interesting. Yeah, it's the audiobooks that I'm listening to right now, too, which is why I ordered the Dutch House. In <laughs> but, uh, I, but I just agree that it is a little distracting what's going on. Then add in the fact that you just got a book out and you're trying to do this strange tour. It does kind of cut down on your ability to focus on write, on reading. At least yeah. it did for me. So yeah. I started listening. All right. So this is a topic I haven't yet covered a lot on the show, but I think it's crucial for writers. And that's around support, writing groups, accountability partners, retreats, writing communities, helpful or a hindrance, benefits, challenges. You know, I'm, I don't do any of those things. I don't have a writer's group. I don't go on retreats. I don't go to colonies. Things that I did when I was younger, I never had a group, but I did go to colonies when I was in my 30s or 20s. But no, these days, it's a very, very different <clears throat> world for me. I have wonderful friends who are writers who read my work when I am finished with it. And if I am stuck in the middle, I can get on the phone with them and talk something through. They will help me problem solve without actually reading what I'm working on. And that is enormously helpful. That's about it. How about you, Sue? My first reader is my daughter. She's an excellent reader and she gives me great feedback, which if she listens in, she's going to raise her eyebrow at this, but mm. it surprised me <laughs> she, she, <laughs> how great she was. Mm. I thought maybe it would be good for her as a writer. It turned out it was really best for me. So 
I give her chapter by chapter of my work and she reads it and she will respond to it and tell me what she thinks. And she has some good suggestions sometimes. In fact, in the book of longings, I said to her, it's very important that I portray the character of Jesus as have some playfulness about him, some humor, some ordinariness too. And she said, why don't you have Anna give him a haircut? And I did. Oh, I love that scene in the cave. Yeah, it's very sexy. Yeah. So, so I thought <laughs> she comes up with some good things sometimes. And I thought, that's brilliant, Anne. I'm going to do that. <laughs> My daughter's name is Anne, by I the know, way. I, right, I know. And I want to say one other thing. I'll try to make this kind of quick. We have what we call the Bronte room in her house. She lives next door to me. As in Bronte sisters? Yes, we have the Bronte room. (laughs) She had this room and she didn't know what to do with it. So I said, why don't we have a Bronte room? And this all came from the fact that we made this literary trip together to England and we went to Howard to see the Bronte house. Oh, no kidding. Oh, it was fantastic. And when we're in the house, we're standing there looking in the dining room And there is this big table in the center of the room. And the guide said, the three sisters, Emily, Anne, and Charlotte, used to sit at this table and write together. And it was a big collaborative experience for them. And they would pace around the table, reading to each other. And they would help each other and say, what about this? And Anne and I looked at each other and said, we need a Bronte table. <laughs> so that was like many years ago, I guess now, at least six or seven. And we finally had a room where we could put a Bronte table. And I think of it as a place where we can have kind of creative conversations about writing and reading. God, that's so cool. That reminds me a bit about the bookstore experience, and it sounds very much like you have this at Parnassus, where you're, it's a gathering place of ideas, and it's a center of a whole ecosystem. It is. Not for writing. <laughs> <laughs> I'd like to just underline that. But certainly for reading and for the exchange of ideas and a place for the community to come and hang out. It's such a strange thing because we're closed now, right? Yeah. But we're shipping books. And so the back room of the store is now the entire store. And everyone who is working at the store, we all kind of have our own corner. I'm actually working at the store now. And I go in every day and I pack things and pull orders and am helpful in a way that I've never been helpful before. And it's a really, really fun time. As much as we miss the customers and it's sad, we're blaring music and (laughs) horrible and we're just sort of skulking around pulling books off the shelf and talking to each other about books all day. But it's no Bronte table. Well, it sounds like a metaphoric Bronte room to me. That's what I'm thinking. That's what it looked like to me. Sue, I want to talk about literary agents for a minute. When Anne was on the show early last year, she talked about being introduced to an agent at ICM at 20, following her piece in the Paris Review, and you started writing at 30. Anne, you actually told me the most comforting advice. I got so many notes when you were on from listeners saying that it made them so happy when you said, when you think of agents, it's not a club where the door is locked and you can't get in. You can write something that's good, 
and be rejected unfairly by a million people. But if you write something that's great, you will be accepted. Yes. So the, <laughs> I mean, bravo. So the million dollar question for you both is, what's your best advice for writing something great? <laughs> oh, please, Anne, go first. <laughs> um, I can do this. Um, okay, I'm going to learn something. Um, whew. Work on yourself as a person instead of working on yourself as a writer. And that was the lesson that I got from Grace Paley, who I studied with when I was in college. She was forever missing class. And when she did show up for class, she would put us all in a van and take us to Manhattan and make us protest the Marine Recruitment Center or whatever. USA CIA out of Grenada. That was my big memory from college. Her whole thing was don't sit with your story and try to polish that sentence to make it exactly right. Go and be a presence in the world. Go fight for good in the world. Be the best person you can be. And so whenever anybody says to me, can writing be taught? And I say, well, yeah, I can teach you how to be a better writer. I can teach you how to write better dialogue or the importance of plot or narration or whatever, but I cannot teach you how to have something to say. And that is the heart of it. Do you have something to say? Hmm. Are you a person who is engaging with the world from the very center of your heart and you're writing about something because you're trying to make a difference? That to me is great writing. Great writing is not figuring out the absolute perfect sentence. A wonderful example right now is Colson Whitehead. And there's a man who I have read all of his books as he has written them, and they are all over the place. He's interested in so many different mm-hmm. things, but humanity, 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 mm-hmm. again and again, no matter if he's writing about elevator inspectors yeah. or zombies or poker players. <laughs> or kids in a detention school in Florida, or a runaway enslaved woman. It is humanity. And that's great writing. You're not reading the book thinking that sentence, oh my gosh, how did he learn to write like that? You're just holding your chest, trying not to fall apart because he's telling you something so profoundly true about the state of human existence. There you go, Sue. Balls in your court. Wow. Oh, thank you for letting me follow that. Wow. That is really quite beautiful and true. I will play off of what you said. I once heard Maya Angelou speak, and she said, it only takes three things to be a writer. You have to have something to say. You have to have the ability to say it. And you have to have the courage to say it at all. Mm-hmm. Well, that stuck with me. And for me, it was always about the courage. So I would say two things. If you want to write something great, be authentic. That was a big deal for me, was discovering my own truth, my own vision, not someone else's, but mine. And I have called this the particular genius that we have as writers or as people, humans, anyone has some kind of particular genius in them. 
Yeah. And I really think it's back to tapping that experience. So yeah, I think going out there in the world, like Grace Paley intrepidly led you out there. I love it. Story. Mm. But also making a path and an adventure inward. Maybe it takes both to do oh my gosh. both in and out to oh. find this incredible experience Anne was describing so beautifully. Yeah. And that it, is so true. And the older I get, the more <laughs> it is the journey inward. And in this mm-hmm. pandemic, realizing it's Dorothy at the end of The Wizard of Oz. If it was never in my own backyard, I'd never really lost it to begin with. Mm-hmm. If I never get on another plane, if I never drive more than five miles from my house, it is fine because it is the journey inward. I agree with that so much. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I would just tack on to this that writing requires a special kind of courage to, I mean, you're being audible in the world. You're sort of coming out and saying, I'm going to be out loud here. <laughs> and I think that you really want to have something to say that is, to your point, Anne, that's very important. But to do it with a kind of boldness, if you're going to err, do it on the side of audacity as a writer. And that's been my theory. Do it on the side of writing a book about Jesus's wife. And Amen, sister. I am Anna. I was the wife of Jesus Ben Joseph of Nazareth. I called him beloved, and he, laughing, called me little thunder. He said he heard rumblings inside me while I slept, a sound like thunder from far over the Nahal Zippori Valley, or even farther beyond the Jordan. I don't doubt he heard something. All my life, longings lived inside me, rising up like nocturnes to wail and sing through the night. That my husband bent his heart to mine on our thin straw mat and listened was the kindness I most loved in him. What he heard was my life begging to be born. So speaking of audacity, I have the audacity to think I can write a book with y'all. So I have this chapter called Permission and Prophecy, and it's about who gave people permission or who saw that they would be writers. And I asked Van Jones that, and I've got the chapter in front of me right now. And He said this very thing. He was talking about how his mother had encouraged him and he was practicing his writing as a kid and he was good at it. But he said, I think the other side of that is having something to say. And he talked about how that took longer because in the world of young African-Americans whose parents came through civil rights and who want to make the world a better place, it's a pretty crowded field. So he said he had to put in 10 and 15 years of work and coming out of it with some novel ideas about the workforce and about green energy. And we had to go through the White House and working there and having all the sort of alliances he had with Newt Gingrich and President Obama and all of that, and then having to leave. And so it's back to what you just said, both of you, about really needing to have something to say. And we don't get that by sitting alone in our house by ourselves for 20 years, or a few of us do. We do have to have some experiences in the world. Now, Emily Dickinson, Eudora Welty, I disagree Mm. with that. I think that the world is full of people and especially women who were able to stay home and just, again, Dorothy, you know, everything is right here. 
And I want to say something too about courage, because I think that when people are starting out and they're young and they think it's like when a girl says, I can't keep a diary because somebody's going to find it. If I put down my innermost thoughts, I have to have the one with the little tiny lock on it. (laughs) Somebody's going to want to jiggle it and get into my innermost thoughts. But courage is realizing that no one cares. (sighs) Is realizing that no one is going to break into your diary or read it if you leave it on the kitchen counter. And that, it's so counterintuitive. I can't write my truth because too many people will be hurt. No, you can't write your truth because it's going to be too painful to realize that no one's going to care. (laughs) And (laughs) you've got to bring it. The courage is in bringing it because you want to bring it. You know, you want to offer the gift and whether or not anybody picks it up or accepts it, that's the scary part. Oh, yeah. I think we all have to take a deep breath and realize what you just said. (laughs) That's true. Yeah. I think it's both and for both of these topics, because I created an app years ago to help people keep track of how they really feel in relationships, what's really going on. And people are terrified because there are people whose diaries are found and there are people whose phones are hacked and disastrous things happen. And mostly people don't read and mostly people don't care. And I think most people have to go out in the world and have experiences to write about. And some people don't have to. (laughs) Some people have this imagination that carries them anywhere. So I think it's both and for both. You know, in the book of Longings, there is this character, Yalfa. It's reminding her. Yeah, I kind of want her in my life, wherever she <laughs> might be. She had this moment with my character, Anna, where she said something like, all shall be well. That doesn't mean life won't bring you tragedy. It just means life will be life. But there is an inviolate place inside of you where it will not harm you. Now, I find that true in life, that terrible things happen, but there is some place inside of me that I will be well in spite of it, no matter what. And that gives me courage to know that we can face life and still have this inviolate place inside. So it's a matter of finding our way there sometimes. And that's part of life too. Yeah. So good. All right. Social media. Both of you started your writing careers without having to play the social media game. And Anne, I think you were resistant, but boy, are you like, (laughs) you're rocking it now. Well, but let me tell you, I'm still not on any social media. It's your store. It's the store. So all these videos, I've never seen them. Oh, you've got to be kidding me. No. I'm posting them. They're hilarious. I've never seen them. Oh, Jesus. (laughs) Yeah. No, I've held the line. People keep saying, oh, everyone's saying such nice things about you on Instagram. And I'm like, no, I'm not looking. You're just not going to watch, just like you won't watch TV. Right. (laughs) (laughs) So what's your relationship to social media? Ambivalence. I am on social media. 
I'm not what you would call an influencer, however. (laughs) (laughs) The fact that you know that term is good enough. Yeah. I do it with some hesitancy. I feel like I'm a fish out of water sometimes when I'm doing it. I try really hard to do it because my publisher wants me to do it and I want to connect with readers. And that seems to be the contemporary way to do it. But it's sometimes not in my wheelhouse. I'm pretty much an introverted, solitary writer. So it's a little hard to put myself out there like that. But I have a learning curve about it, but I'm getting better at it, I think, and doing it with a little more ease instead of angsting over every word you write in a tweet, (laughs) which I've been there. Yeah, I know. It's a weird world. I just look at my friend, Sandy Boynton, who puts out pictures of ducks every day, you know, (laughs) made a five-pointed star out of ducks with their feet all together a few days ago. And then she'll send it to me because, of course, I'm not on social media, so I'd miss it. And I think, well, you know, if I knew how to draw a really cute duck, (laughs) I would totally go on social media. But until that time has come, I'm staying off. Well, I think that what was most awkward for me was actually trying to put things out there about my book that promoted it. It felt so awkward, like counter to everything I'm about. And I had to kind of uh, hold my nose and do that. But the other day I posted, and not ducks, but a big frying pan full of fried apples. <laughs> I saw oh. it. It looked delicious. <laughs> There you and I, go. And I never had more fun posting anything. It was like, <laughs> welcome to the South, y'all. I mean, fried apples. <laughs> so as you see, I'm a beginner at it always, even though I've been at it for a few years. You're doing great. You're doing great. All right, last question. Writing about others. Sue, I remember hearing that when you sent your mother, Dance of the Dissident Daughter, which is one of my favorite books, you didn't hear back from her for a couple of months. Were you worried? Yes, it was. <laughs> you didn't hear back from her, period? Or just not about the book? <laughs> no, she would, we talked about other things. Very. Oh, Lord. Little. Yeah, and we just discreetly skipped over that part that I had written a book that took on our entire religious tradition. <laughs> then, two months later, a letter arrives, and we usually talked by phone. We didn't live in the same town. And she had written me a letter, which was highly unusual. And I thought, uh oh. <laughs> and I opened it and read it cautiously, but it was beautiful. And she said something like, I am, I forget the exact age, 70 something years old at the time. And I don't want to miss the dance. Please help me learn the dance. <gasps> oh my God. Oh, I have goosebumps. Yeah. And I keep, this is a treasure for me is this letter. So she became on board with what I was writing about late in life. And we had many wonderful, intimate conversations about it. And she became a champion of feminism. (laughs) (laughs) My father would look at me and go, well, you ruined her. That reminds me a little bit of Glennon Doyle with her mother and how her mother came Uh around so amazing. Yeah, yeah. And then, Anne, you had always shied away from writing autobiographically until Commonwealth. 
And was the scariest thing that you dealt with creatively, was it writing closer to home about things that had mirrored your tough childhood? No, the big switch for me was not Commonwealth. It was Happy Marriage, which was a book of very autobiographical essays. Yeah. Beautiful too. I I loved loved that. Mm -hmm. Oh, thank you. And I thought that my family would be so hurt. And I let everybody read that book before I published it. And they they were like, we don't, you know, what you, we didn't know that we got divorced. You're not breaking any news here. This is all public record. And so Commonwealth was the result of that because I thought, oh my gosh, they don't care. I've been Uh. trying to protect them all my life and they don't actually care. And so I wrote Commonwealth and they didn't care about that either. But I did let everyone read it. I talked to everybody about it before I did it while I was doing it. Let everybody read the manuscript. And they were like, yeah, no, we don't. Care. Going back to my original point of right, right. Now I get courage, it. Courage. Now the I courage get it. Of writing is yeah. not that you're going to rock the world. <laughs> Everybody's going to look at you and say, "Okay, what are we having for dinner?" And I love your mother's line about it. None of it happened, and all of it's true. <laughs> yeah. Oh, and a great note about that was when I got off tour for Commonwealth, and I came home, and I was interviewing Zadie Smith for Swing Time. And we were talking about autobiographical fiction. And just to cut to the chase, she said, autobiographical fiction is not necessarily writing what happened. It's writing about what you are afraid could have happened or what you wanted to have happened. That that is equally as autobiographical as writing about what happened. And I thought at that moment, oh my God, that explains it. Because you can write something that never happened and it feels so So autobiographical, but it's because it's what you're afraid of. It's what's in your mind all the time. Wow. I love you both. Thank you so much. This was absolutely a dream come true for me. It was such a pleasure. And Sue, good luck on your virtual tour. And Linda, good luck with your book. Thank you. Oh, and I just loved this conversation with you too. It's been one of the most fun ones I've had. This has been great. So thank you. Mm. May we meet again. Can't wait. At Parnassus. Okay. In the the back. (laughs) (laughs) Goodbye, friends. Take care. Goodbye. Bye-bye. Thank you. My own audacities lay hidden inside a carved cedar chest in a corner of my room. Scrolled papyri parchments, and scraps of silk, all of which bore my writings. There were reed pens, a sharpening knife, a cypress writing board, vials of ink, an ivory palette, and a few precious pigments my father had brought from the palace. The pigments were mostly gone now, but they'd been luminous the day I'd opened the lid for Yaltha. It's as I thought, she said, her face candescent. You've been greatly blessed by God such words. The houses on Van Hubeck Street were never entirely dark. People left their porch lights on all night, as if they were always waiting for someone to come home. Gas lights flickered at the ends of driveways. A lamp in the front window of a living room stayed on through the night. But even with all these small bursts of illumination, there was a stillness about the place that made it clear the inhabitants were all in their beds. Even the dogs of Elkins Park were asleep. What a blast. Thank you, Sue. Thank you, Anne. 
And you, my dear audacious listener, I'm so happy you're here. If you're a writer, I know how much it means to you to have access to these worlds. I'm right there with you. If you want to hear Anne tell the funniest story I have ever heard about editing, specifically about realizing she'd written an entire book that did not work, go back to last year's show. I'm excited too to hear what you think about the Book of Longings and the Dutch House. Tag me on social media or as always, I love your five stars or love notes on iTunes or wherever you're listening. A few things I think are really important to mention. When buying books, please, please support your local bookstores. They have been so hard hit and our communities desperately need these gathering places. And to my fellow white listeners, our black and brown brothers and sisters need us. They need us to stand with them, with our voices, with our physical presence and our donations. They need us to do all that we can to support their efforts to live freely and safely. I hope you'll take your outrage at what you're seeing, because I know you're outraged, and turn it into action. And read as many diverse voices as you can. I have some incredible guests slated for the summer and fall. And I feel so blessed that writers like Sue and Anne have harnessed their courage and their outrage and their audacity to write books that allow us to put our minds and hearts into the soul of another. As long as I can, I'll be bringing you their stories. Until next time, write on.